and welcome back to the Killer Kind Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Miller. I don't have much to say, so I'd like to go ahead and just jump right on in, but maybe one day I'll find something to say during these intros. If you have any suggestions, let me know. But let's get into it. So the story I have for you today is about a beautiful young college student who is brutally attacked in her dorm room just two weeks away from graduation. But who did it and why? Well, you'll find out. Let's dive into the murder of Yardley Love. Yardley Reynolds Love was born on July 17, 1987, to the parents of John and Sharon. Yardley was four years younger than her sister Lexi, who she admired growing up. The two were super close from the start. And really, the entire family was very close. The Loves lived in Cockeysville, Maryland, a beautiful suburb north of Baltimore. And the Love family were pillars in their community. They regularly attended church. They volunteered at soup kitchens when Lexi and Yardley's extracurricular activities would allow it. At the early age of five, Yardley started playing lacrosse with her father. And she quickly fell in love with the sport. By high school, Yardley was a star lacrosse and field hockey player. She was all four years at Notre Dame Preparatory School, where she went to high school. Sadly, her father lost his battle with cancer when she was just 15 years old, and it was devastating to her and her family. But Yardley wanted to live a life that her father would have been proud of. That's why when her father's alma mater, the University of Virginia, called, she knew that's where she was meant to go. Yardley was able to continue her passion for lacrosse when the university offered her a spot on their women's lacrosse team, and she could not have been more excited. In the fall of 2006, Yardley started her freshman year at UVA, where she decided to major in government and minor in Spanish Academics had never really been an issue for Yardley. She was known to be an academic overachiever. And same goes for her time on the field as well. That girl could do it all. But her life would change when she met another freshman lacrosse player, George Wesley Hughley V. The two met because of the lacrosse connection they had. You see, both the men's and women's lacrosse teams hung out together. They would travel together for away games, but also socialize as well. And they were known to date each other and all hang out together. So it wasn't too surprising when George and Yardley started dating. But who was this George guy? Well, George was a child of divorced parents who went through a pretty nasty divorce when he was in middle school. His family came from money, that was for sure, and they were definitely your typical white, privileged, wealthy family whose kid played lacrosse. (laughs) His dad had multiple girlfriends, and his mom was this beautiful former model at Saks Fifth Avenue, and George was your typical little punk, right? In high school, he was this cocky quarterback and lacrosse player. His freshman year, he was put in during a football game, and he tells the coach that if he makes a big play, he would kiss his fiance. And sure enough, he made a big play and walked straight to the coach's fiance and asked her for her number. 
couple years later, he stole the lacrosse coach's car keys, drove the car onto the field right up next to the coach, rolled down the window, and started having a conversation with him. The coach was pissed, obviously, but the whole team died out laughing. I mean, again, what a little punk, you know? <laughs> there's no other better, there's no better way to describe it. During his senior year at Landon School, a college prep school for boys, George was the starting quarterback and led Landon to a conference title. And in lacrosse, he had the fifth largest goal total in school history. He was recruited by UVA for lacrosse as well, but he wasn't as much of a star in college. There's mixed reports here as far as how hard George seemed to work to stay on the team, but Eventually, George gained the reputation of being the team clown. He was known as a partier, which everyone in college and everyone on the team attended college parties. However, he was known to party a little too much. He stopped attending practices, and really, he just didn't take college or lacrosse too seriously. In 2007, George was arrested for underage drinking in Florida, where his family had a vacation home. A year later, officers stopped George, who was stumbling into traffic on a very busy road. The female officer that stopped George said that she had given him a warning initially, telling him to find a ride home or he would be arrested. After she told him this, he became very violent. He started wrestling with the officer while yelling racist and sexist remarks. Not only that, he screamed at the officer that he would kill her and, quote, kill all of y'all. I'm not going to jail. During this incident, he ended up having to be tased in order to be restrained. When George had to face a judge because of this, he claimed to have been too drunk to remember what he even said. He ultimately had to pay a $1,000 fine, complete 50 hours of community service, He received a 60-day reduced sentence with six months probation as well. Despite saying he was too drunk to remember what had happened, at school he bragged about the entire thing. A few months prior to that incident, his own father called the cops on him to report a domestic dispute. Nothing I could find really mentioned who else was involved in this altercation, just that George was the main issue. And... What was crazy was that they were actually on a boat at the time, and when police arrived, George jumps into the ocean and began swimming to shore, which was about a quarter of a mile away. He ended up having to be picked up by a passing boat. Now, there were never any charges officially filed against him for this, but still, after all of these run-ins with police, somehow he manages to keep his spot on the lacrosse team and stay enrolled at the university. And here's the thing. Supposedly, UVA has a policy in place that says students are supposed to report any arrests while in school, and they also supposedly run a background check on future students in order to prevent any violent behavior, or I'm sure just to keep troublemakers out in general. But that's the thing. George had an arrest prior to UVA, as well as an arrest while in college. So obviously, these policies weren't a priority, or maybe he just slipped through the cracks. Who knows? But moving on. So Yardley and George meet their freshman year at UVA. 
And the two hit it off pretty quickly. And it's one of these on again, off again relationships. Total, the two dated for about two years. It was a rocky two years, but still. And it's also one of those relationships that I think they were probably attracted to each other instantly, probably fell in, fell in love quickly before they even really knew one another. Yardley would eventually start to notice, though, that George had a drunken, violent side, one that she would slowly start to share with her friends, especially if the two broke up. You know, we're off again. In 2009, while at a party, Yardley decided she was ready to leave, and George was not. George found out a little later, though, that one of his lacrosse teammates walked Yardley home that night, and that pretty much sent him into a jealous rage. George apparently thought that Yardley and his teammate kissed after he walked her home, even though they have both denied it. Apparently, George breaks into this guy's house and attacks him while he is asleep. The teammate was ultimately okay, luckily, and the two eventually talked it out. And all was well, supposedly. But what a psycho. Who attacks someone while they're sleeping besides a psycho? And it doesn't stop there. A few months later in the spring of 2010, both the men's and women's lacrosse teams won a game one day. And together, they all decided to throw a party to celebrate. Well, apparently George got so excited, quote unquote, that he jumped on top of Yardley and started choking her. It was so scary that Yardley's friends had to wrestle him off of her. And after this incident, Yardley said she was done with the relationship for good. The two were seen interacting on campus throughout the next few weeks. Some have speculated that it was just George trying to talk to Yardley, but nobody really knows. But the two did seem to be okay during the breakup and everything seemed pretty normal. That was until May 1st, 2010. That Saturday, George and the lacrosse team won their final game of the season. And as usual, both men and women's lacrosse teams got together to celebrate, which included, of course, Yardley and George. Now, while at the party, George's mom, Marta, was there And she and Yardley spent time talking during the party. George did try to talk to them both, you know, kind of join in that conversation from time to time, but not much was said and everything just seemed normal, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. But little did anyone know things would take a dark turn by the end of that weekend. At 2.15 on the early morning of Monday, May 3rd, Yardley's roommate, Katie, who was a teammate of Yardley's as well, and her friend, Philippe, returned to the apartment after being out at some of the local sports bars. Katie decides to wake up Yardley, who had actually been out with them earlier that night, but decided to leave early because she was tired. But when Katie walks into the apartment and up to Yardley's door, she notices there's a giant hole in the door. It looks like someone tried to break into Yardley's room. Now, At first, her immediate thought was, dang, how drunk was this girl when she got home? Like maybe her roommate busted a hole in her own door. However, once she walked in, she knew something was off. When she enters the room, she notices that Yardley is lying face down on her bed in her underwear. When she knelt down next to her roommate, her worst fears came true. 
She notices a pool of blood around Yardley's head and that her right eye is swollen. She tries shaking her friend awake, but no matter what she does, Yardley doesn't budge. Katie runs out of the room and has Philippe call 911. Now, initially, the two are thinking it's maybe alcohol poisoning or something like that. So that's what they tell the dispatcher. Philippe is asked to check for a pulse, and when he doesn't find one, they ask him to do a CPR until they get there. When paramedics arrive, they quickly realize there is way more to this than alcohol poisoning. They notice blood coming from several different lacerations on her face and that her right eye is black and completely swollen shut. And after they too can't find a pulse, they quickly start life-saving measures, CPR, intubation, and medications that try to revive the 100-pound 22-year-old. Sadly, despite their efforts and after 20 minutes of trying, Yardley Love was pronounced dead at 2.47 a.m. on May 3rd. Six minutes after Yardley was pronounced dead, homicide detective Lisa Reeves arrived at the college student's apartment, and it was now all considered a crime scene. First things first, they need to survey the room, and what they quickly realize is that the blood is not contained to Yardley's bed. It's everywhere. It's on the carpet. There's a laptop case nearby. There's blood on that and on towels in the bathroom as well. There's also an off-white spot on one of the walls that has like a gray color to it. And they find a crushed beer can in the bathroom trash. And there's other evidence to collect as well, like hair found in the jagged edges of the door where that hole was knocked out. So all of the physical evidence is being gathered and sent off for testing. And jumping ahead a little bit, Katie helps detectives determine if there's anything missing from Yardley's apartment. And the only thing she can determine that's gone is Yardley's laptop. The case is there, but the laptop itself is missing. So they know if they can find the laptop, then they likely are going to find Yardley's killer. In the meantime, Katie and Philippe are taken down to the police station and are questioned about the whole night and ultimately who was Yardley Love and who would have wanted her dead. That's always the first question, right? So Katie explains that Yardley is a senior at the University of Virginia and was set to graduate in just two weeks. She explained that they were both on the UVA women's lacrosse team, who was ranked number four in the nation at the time, and were scheduled to play in the NCAA tournament. Katie said her roommate and friend is loved by everyone on the team. She has lots of friends and is just an overall joyful and cheerful person. However, there was a darkness in Yardley's life. Her ex-boyfriend, George. Katie explains the two had a pretty rocky relationship and that George was known to be verbally abusive based on an email George sent Yardley where he used abusive language towards her. Katie couldn't remember exactly what the email said, but this was definitely a red flag to Detective Reeves. So she knew she needed to find out more about their relationship. And everyone they spoke to said their relationship was troubled, and to say the least, and that everyone was worried about Yardley while the two were dating. 
One of Yardley's friends mentioned a time that they were out drinking after a lacrosse game with the UVA men's team and the visiting University of North Carolina team. And while George was drunk that night, he physically assaulted Yardley and had to be pulled off of her by the visiting UNC team. Unfortunately, once again, there was never a police report filed. So after hearing that police reports had been filed, haven't been filed for any instances involving Yardley, Detective Reeves wants to know if he has a criminal history or if things have just never been reported. Well, as we know, he has had run-ins with police. So they see all these reports of domestic dispute, the altercation with the female officer, everything. So needless to say, George Hughley is their prime person of interest. Detective Lisa Reeves showed up at George's apartment just after sunrise that morning. Now, she was in civilian clothes and claimed to be conducting research that George could be helpful with. He apparently pitched a little fit about being woken up so early, but he ultimately agreed to help with the research. He was taken down to the police station willingly, and while in the car, Detective Reeves looks him over, you know, looks at his hands, looks at his like like mannerisms, and notices several bruises and scratches on his hands and arms. Now, if you listen to this podcast long enough, or really any true crime buff will know what this would be considered. Say it with me in unison. Defense wounds. Okay, I'm sure at this point, Detective Reeves was pumped and like probably a little nervous knowing she was likely in the car with a killer. But they bring George in and they're up front with him. They tell him, look, he's being detained, which means he's not allowed to leave. But they don't yet mention why he's there, really. They don't even mention Yardley's name at first. In a recorded interview since released to the public, Detective Reeves sits down in a room with George and sort of reintroduces herself. She reads him his Miranda rights and explains that he can have a lawyer present if he would like, and, he, and if he chooses to talk to them today, then he can stop talking at any time. As we know, George's family is loaded. He could have definitely called his dad and had some high-priced lawyer come in for this questioning, but luckily... Detective Reeves at this point has built rapport with him and makes him feel like she can be trusted. And again, they don't mention Yardley's name at all at first. However, she does say that she is a detective conducting an investigation. She starts off the conversation simply asking about his day yesterday, that day prior, which is a Sunday. He said that he was at a father-son golf event he attended where he had about five beers or so. Then he went to dinner with his dad that night, where he had about two glasses of wine. Then he went out to a bar for a little bit after that, and there he probably had about maybe like five more beers. So he steadily drinks all day, which we know that drunk George is known to get violent. Then he says that he decides to go to his former girlfriend's house to talk about what had happened the past week. Now, supposedly, Yardley had actually hooked up with another lacrosse player while they were broken up, but George said that she did it when they were, quote, still trying to figure things out. Now, apparently, he got upset when he saw her out with this same guy at the bar a few nights later, 
And as some sort of revenge, he invited two girls over to the apartment. Supposedly, Yardley showed up and was pissed that these two girls were there, and she attacked George and started hitting him in the face. George's roommate's girlfriend ended up having to pull her off of him. Now, in Yardley's defense, I've been in a toxic relationship like this. Not to compare my past relationship issues with this one. There's no comparison. But I have been in one that had its issues, okay? So, when I was pushed or grabbed, I hit back. I've been there. So, I don't blame her here one bit. Either way, though, we have this abusive psychopath trying to paint himself as the victim in this instance. But boy, does he continue to play the victim. So George claims that he goes to Yardley's apartment to talk things out. When asked if she knew if he was coming over, because she did leave the bar early that night, he said that he had emailed her like six times over the past few days saying that he was going to come over to talk to her. He couldn't call or text her because she had apparently lost her phone, but he admits that he wasn't sure if she knew that he was coming at that time. Now, when he gets to Yardley's apartment, he said it was about 1245 a.m. And when he arrives, he says that her apartment door was unlocked so he can just let himself in. Initially, he made it seem like her bedroom door was unlocked as well and that he easily walked in to that door. Then he explained that he was telling Yardley that he was there just to talk, nothing more, but that she was telling him, no, you can't come in. He said she starts freaking out for seemingly no reason. But after telling him that he can't come in and things like that, he eventually opens the door and she starts freaking out even more and started becoming very aggressive with him. He says he made it seem like he was so surprised by her behavior. Um, no, we all have that. What's called fight or flight. (laughs) When someone is busting down your door, those are to your two options. And she chose to fight. So good for her. He said she started pushing him and telling him to get out. And he said, quote, I shook her a little bit to try to get her to relax and listen. And that's, and that he's just there to talk. But that she ended up retreating back to the corner of her room. And that's when things get weird. According to George, he said Yardley was backed up into the corner of her room, kind of like, I think on her bed, he says in the corner and She's basically up against the wall. And once again, he uses the word freaking out. And she starts hitting her head up against the wall, which who in the world would do that? That made no sense. But eventually he, he admits to wrestling Yardley down to the ground and he holds her arms down. He described her actions as a fish out of water, just kind of flailing and freaking out. When he has her pinned to the ground, he said he noticed her nose was bleeding. And it was at that point that he realized he wasn't going to get where he wanted to with this conversation. So he, he describes this next moment a few different times. So it, it's described in different ways because that's what this whole interview is. He's kind of talking in circles, which we'll get more into. But first he says, I got frustrated and I just picked her up and tossed her on the bed and told her to get some sleep. He said he never physically hit her in the face or anything like that at all. He just 
maybe shook her a little bit and held her down to stop her from being aggressive. This whole time though, Detective Reeves is just letting him talk, letting him go through his whole like full story of what had happened. In conclusion, he said the whole altercation lasted about eight to 10 minutes. And afterwards he was, he went back to his empty apartment and went to sleep. End of story. Now let's be real. Detective Reeves knows this dude is lying. There is no way that his story is true based on the way that Yardley was found. And the main reason was because he claimed she was still alive when he left the apartment. And what are the odds that somebody else, like what came in after him and killed her? There's no way. So what Detective Reeves wants to do now is question him a little bit more. Catch him slipping up or changing his story. First things first, the investigator asks George how he got into Yardley's room. Because initially, like I said earlier, he made it seem like it was unlocked. Like all the doors were unlocked. But we know there's a giant hole in the door. Well, he said, oh, you know what? Her door might have been locked because I did punch a hole in it. So there's lie number one. He was also asked if he ever choked Yardley at any point. And he said, well, I may have put my hands on her neck during the whole commotion, but I never strangled her. Okay. (laughs) And lastly, let's remember the whole missing laptop situation. Detective Reeves knows she has to find that laptop. So she asked George about it. And once again, he starts with one story and then quickly changes to another. First, he said he took her laptop as collateral, whatever that's supposed to mean. And when asked where the laptop is now, he said initially it's in his room. But then a short time later, he says it's in a dumpster. And guys, if you watch the interview, the entire time he was stumbling over his words, he said, like, I swear over like 500 times. He can barely put a perfect sentence together. He's very much like rambling and talking in circles. Now I'm self-conscious about how many times I say like. But anyways, it's almost like someone who is making things up as they go, or like he's trying to read the detective's face to make sure he says what he thinks she wants to hear. So at this point, they pretty much know, right? They've got their guy. But here's the thing. George doesn't know that Yarley's dead because at some point in the interview, he is told that they're investigating an assault and He thinks it's like her word against his. And they let him think that a little longer. Because in their mind, this guy knows she's dead. How could he not? At one point, Detective Reeves asks if George thought to reach back out to Yardley to make sure she was okay. And he said no. He didn't think she needed to go like to the emergency room or anything. That was his words. Eventually, after this conversation with Detective Reeves, another detective is brought in. And it's at that moment that Detective Reeves tells George that Yardley is dead because he killed her. And he is stunned. He repeats over and over again that, no, she's not dead. She's not dead. There's no way. There's no way. That was the only part that honestly seemed genuine to me. But how did he really not think she was dead? But anyways, the second detective that comes in paints the very real, horrific story. He tells George that, look, We know you went over there. You probably wanted just to go talk to Yardley, but things got out of control, didn't it? You hit her in the face. You attacked her because you were so angry at her. Things escalated. 
and now a young woman is dead. At that moment, he was placed in handcuffs, and George asked, what now? I go to jail? And here's the thing. This guy has been in trouble countless times throughout his life. He has had these violent outbursts and has gotten away with it every single time. He has been protected by everyone in his life throughout his entire life. It seriously reminds me of the Murdaugh family, how money and privilege can make you feel like you're above the law. But maybe had someone for once not protected people like this, then people like Yardley and those in the Murdaugh family wouldn't be gone. It's just the reality. George Hughley, though, was formally arrested and charged with the murder of Yardley Love. Police get a search warrant for his apartment, and they find a couple things. They find two Apple laptop computers, neither of which are Yardley's. They find a spiral notebook, two white socks. The bathroom and the entryway rugs are taken in for testing, and a UVA lacrosse shirt with a red stain on it. George tells them which dumpster he threw her laptop in, and they are able to find that. The computer contained several emails back and forth between the two, one where Yardley's apologizing for what had happened between her and that other guy, and George sends a nasty response back. Then he sends her like a nicer email saying he wants to work things out. But then he turns around and sends another verbally abusive email berating Yardley. George is held at the Charlottesville jail, though, without bond. And on January 7th, 2012, prosecutors add five additional charges to his initial charge of first-degree murder. Those charges were felony murder, robbery, burglary, entering a house with an intent to commit a felony, and grand larceny. And surprisingly, or I guess maybe we shouldn't be surprised, George pleads not guilty. Of course he does. A grand jury indicted George on April 18th, 2011, and a trial date was set for February 6th, 2012. The prosecution in the trial lay out all of the evidence, including the emails back and forth, countless and countless testimonies from friends that witnessed George being violent towards Yardley, And they too had the DNA to prove that George was definitely in Yardley's room that night. Unfortunately, though, they could not get any DNA from that crushed beer can that they had found. And the hairs found in the hole in the door could not be matched to anyone in particular. But still, they had a pretty good case against this kid. But the defense tries to paint a totally different story. They claimed that, yes, George did go over there to Yardley's apartment that night just to talk, like he claimed in that taped interview, but that he was texting friends that night making plans, so this wasn't some sort of premeditated attack. And as for how she died, it was supposedly not from blunt force trauma, which we later find out in the medical examiner's report. No, it was from heart failure due to a combination of the 22-year-old taking too much Adderall and drinking. The prosecution proved that to be 
totally bogus. Yardley was found with 10 times less than the lethal amount of Adderall in her system. Yes, she did have a prescription for Adderall, but there was no evidence of her ever abusing it. The defense also claimed that the injuries to Yardley's body weren't from a brutal attack. No, of course not. Those injuries were from CPR being administered incorrectly, which is just insane. I mean, we did hear about similar reports to that in the last case that that we talked about, but how on earth did they think that was going to work? Prosecutors pretty much tore that to shreds. They brought in the first responders that were at the scene to prove that any injury that could be caused by bad CPR did not match the injuries Yardley had all over her face and head. Then they brought in several medical professionals that all said the same thing. There was nothing wrong with Yardley's heart. And the only explanation her autopsy gives for her death is blunt force trauma to the head. And to get a little graphic with you guys, the prosecution painted the picture of that. Remember that spot that I mentioned, that grayish spot on the wall? The prosecution says that they believe that is from Yardley's head being hit up against the wall. I'm sorry to have to put that image in your head, but that's where that kind of suspicious gray spot came from. But moving on, things don't really go the way anyone expects. On Wednesday, February 23rd, George Hughley is found guilty, but not for what we all hoped. After deliberating for about nine hours, the jury delivered the verdict of a guilty for second-degree murder and grand larceny for stealing the laptop, not for first-degree murder or any of the other charges. Sadly, Judge Edward Hogshire sentenced George to only 24 years in prison, 23 for second-degree murder and one for grand larceny conviction to be served concurrently. George does try to appeal his conviction multiple times, but luckily it's upheld each time. On April 26, 2012, Sharon Love filed a wrongful death lawsuit against George, and a week later she filed a second wrongful death lawsuit against the UVA men's lacrosse team coaching staff and the athletic director, alleging gross negligence on part of the coaching staff. That lawsuit was later dropped with no real reason given, but the initial lawsuit against George was dismissed without prejudice by the Love family as well on June 11, 2018. However, they do refile the lawsuit again later that year, and it went to trial. On May 2, 2022, the jury found George liable, and the family was awarded $15 million in compensation. That was split evenly between Yardley's mom, Sharon, and her sister, Lexi. The one good thing that has since come from Yardley's death is the One Love Foundation. Yardley wore the number one jersey while playing lacrosse for UVA, and the team retired her number. Within a month of the murder, her family established the One Love Foundation to raise awareness about domestic violence, especially relationship violence. The One Love Foundation has educated around 1 million young people on the signs for an unhealthy relationship. The purpose of the foundation is to improve the relationship health of the next generation, which is awesome. 
One Love Foundation works with schools and communities across the U.S. In 2014, they released a film called Escalation to Baseball and Lacrosse Players at Jacksonville University in Jacksonville, Florida. Since then, many other colleges and universities have required student athletes to complete a workshop that encompasses watching the film and having a discussion. And in 2016, the foundation partnered with the NFL. And that is the story of Yardley Love. Y'all, this one's tough. This is one of those, though, that is important to tell, right? This story needs to be shared. What Yardley went through did not have to happen. Guys like this are protected for many different reasons. It could be because of their status, hence the Aaron Hernandez situation. It could be like because of who they are as a person or the money they have, the notoriety. It could be anything. But people like this can be protected and they shouldn't be. If you see signs of domestic violence, violence in no matter what the situation, please report it. Even if you think it's nothing, even if you think it was just like a one-time fluke thing, no, report it. Do your part. Who knows? You could save a life. As always, I definitely want to hear your thoughts on this one. So be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram page. That's killer.kind.pod and leave your thoughts on today's episode post, or you can shoot me a DM and we can chat about it. In this episode, I briefly mentioned the Murdaugh family and that went to trial and the verdict was read. I won't spoil it for any of those that haven't heard, but that is definitely one I am dying to cover. So I don't know when it's coming, but stay tuned. I think you should be able to turn on post notifications wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe, turn on notifications if you can, and that way you see when I post that episode, and that way you see when I post anytime. That is going to do it for me this week, guys. I'll be back here in two weeks with a brand new episode. Until then, stay safe. Bye.